This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. New year, new job cuts. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Woolard here with Motley Fool analyst David Meyer. David, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good. We've got sun. I'm happy about it. Um, <laughs> wanted to talk to you this week about, about job cuts, because this year has kicked off with a lot of cuts, and I'm kind of surprised by it, but we've got Amazon, Unity Software, BlackRock, Rent the Runway, Google, even Xerox. So last year to me felt like the year of the big layoff. This year, maybe the small layoff. What, what's happening here? Time will tell if we're going to find out if this is you know, a new round of bigger layoffs or if this is just a sort of a ones they didn't get to, companies didn't get to in 2023. Because if we go back and think about what was being communicated in 2023, um, a lot of the growth in t- uh, tech companies slowed and the push for profits and cash flow increased. So that leads me to believe that, hey, if there's any, you know, now's the time when companies are finalizing their budgets and getting ready for the next year. So if the companies are rationalizing their growth plans where investment dollars are being cut, unfortunately, there's a good chance labor dollars have to get cut with it, right? You need to match. That's the idea of matching your your potential revenue with the potential uh, expenses. So, you know, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, but uh, obviously a lot of announcements to start the year. And the question I'm, I'm asking myself, is it is it iterative? Is it incremental? Are we sort of like honing our, our, our focus here. It's, it's kind of hard to know. And the other thing I'm kind of juxtaposing that with is, is the macro. So I chatted recently with Lizanne Saunders from Schwab. We're going to have her on our Saturday show. And she said that some companies might be hoarding labor. So there's this kind of conflicting data between the macro job numbers are still strong, but we're also seeing all of these, these little layoffs. So how do we balance all of that? Yeah, that's a that is a, a, a an excellent point you've made and an excellent question. So, as a bottom-up investor, what I'm trying to stay focused on is what the companies are saying and doing more so than the higher-level data. And that's because the first and foremost what I'm trying to figure out is if a stock is attractive or not, and that starts with company data. But as you so rightly pointed out, we have to pay more attention to the macro data um, because what that does is it helps us understand the type of investing environment that we're in. And to your point, right now the data, you know, from a company level versus the higher level data seems to be a little bit conflicting. Unemployment is still very low, and that's even as interest rates have been rising. So, right now with overall good employment. We have wages that have gone up. Uh, We have the rate of inflation falling. That seems to be good for the economy and should be good for stocks. 
However, we need to evaluate what's happening at a company level in order to figure out if the particular stock we're interested in is attractive or not. Yeah, that that's such a good point because some of the companies I mentioned, there's a big difference between your an alphabet versus your rent the runway. These are just very different types of companies. 100%. Yeah, and so all of that, all of that really is is interesting when you think about this because you've got the overall macro, and then you've got the sort of underneath of like, okay, there's a lot of layoffs, and then you've got the layer deeper. And you talked about being a, a bottom bottom up investor. You know, it's always conflicting for me because as an individual, I I hate layoffs. I mean, I was a victim of one way back when I worked at AOL, and there were a few more before me, and it was it was painful. But as an investor, I kind of have to look at this, and sometimes I see the stock go up, and I have to think about this from a, a more kind of impersonal standpoint. So what, what kind of questions are you asking yourself? So um, I have fortunately not been in a layoff, uh, although I have seen them happen around me at some companies mm-hmm. that, I, that yeah. I used to work for. So I, I can completely empathize with what you're saying. But as an analyst, the main thing that I want to know is, is this decision consistent with what management's outlook going forward is? Or, or what is what, if it's inconsistent, is what we're seeing a sign of potential problems ahead? So, as an outsider, right, as an outside investor looking in at the company's data, um, I, I'm not privy to the internal conversations that happen about these things. So, they can be made for a variety of different reasons. But it's important for me to think about the decision relative to the strategy and the tactics that the company is communicating. And again, it's, it's, it's about consistency. Like, tell me, you know, does this make, does the decision that you're making make sense with where your business is headed? Well, I, that's such a good point too because I I look at the press releases. I I used to work in in PR, so I understand PR speak a bit. But uh, you know, and I I look at this like with BlackRock, they were talking about we're doing these layoffs, but that's because we see you know more money going toward ETFs. We look at Amazon and Google, and they each have a reason that is that is interesting. So with Google, they're they're laying off some of the people around the Google Assistant. But they're also putting more energy into it. And with Amazon, you've got cuts in Twitch, you've got cuts in Prime Video, MGM Studios. Maybe that's indicating uh, cost of content. So these are small, little niggly moves in these massive behemoths. But what are are they also signals? Not just about the job cuts, like hey, we need to balance the budget, but also, hey, we're going in a different direction, and that's why this is necessary. Oh, so we're bringing in another variable here. Uh, that, <laughs> exactly, that's what you're, that's yeah. what you're telling me. But <laughs> but again, your your point is spot on. And and again, I'll go back to the consistency question. So so let's let's use Google's announcement as the example to walk through here. Um, there may be cuts. There, sorry, there may be costs and benefits of the work that needs to go into. Uh, maintaining and improving Google Assistant at this point in its life cycle, right? But you could argue that that technology is probably matured. And Mm -hmm. if it's matured enough, it may need a different amount of labor to do the maintenance and incremental uh, innovation that's required to to keep it going. So, uh, you know, one thing could be, hey, I don't need as much direct labor making these big leaps and bounds in terms of technological innovations. Maybe I need less labor and more AI in order to have a better 
control of my costs that keep the keep that service up and running and interesting for the people who are using it on their phones. Yes, yeah, makes me start to wonder if, if it, we don't know if these are AI related Correct. cuts, and and <laughs> you know everyone's looking for that, so it's it's sort of tricky where where we're at right now in the cycle. But I think your your that point is is again spot on. You know, these are the types of things that I think people don't necessarily appreciate. Uh, in terms of what AI can do. It's not just, hey, I'm going to revolutionize the way we do business, right? It's also, I, I can, like, if I can assign AI to do tasks uh, and be more efficient at tasks that I need done, companies are going to do that. That's that's one way you get, uh, um, you know, a, a scale advantage in your labor, uh, unfortunately, is to reduce the labor and get more output as a result of that labor using technology. Well, and then that, you know, you have to balance also the optics of this, you know, coming back to, to the PR. So, you know, Google announced this and immediately there were there was a, a tweet from the Alphabet Workers Union saying, you know, these small cuts are they're unnecessary for a company of this size. And then you had another story that was sort of like a an, an almost job cut from Salesforce. So Fortune had this story of Salesforce might be freezing hiring, and so you know then Salesforce had to come out and say that that you know they're they're strategically hiring, which is interesting because Benioff has been CEO Mark Benioff of Salesforce. <laughs> you know, big job cuts last year. Then their last earnings call, he seemed to be like throwing open the door, saying AI is making us boom, we're hiring. So how do you like to see companies handle some of these really tricky optics? Be consistent. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so I think the you know if if we if we look at the context, fo focus on Salesforce and and Mark Benioff here, and we look at the context. Look, Mark Benioff is a promotional CEO. He loves oh, yeah. to grow. He loves to talk about his company. He loves to talk about the culture within Salesforce. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, but as a you know as a mature company, you know. If growth is picking up and your company needs more labor to execute and cap, you know, capture that growth, then you can talk about hiring. There's no problem with that. But if growth is slowing down and your company needs less labor as a result in order to prov you know, um, provide a return to shareholders, look, that's that's not a fun story to tell. And you know, Mark Benioff doesn't want to tell that story, right? That's just not who he is as a as a person as a CEO. But it's the right one to tell. So you know, again, be just be consistent. Try to be rational here. And f again, for me as an analyst, I'm looking for that consistency. I want to make sure there is a match between what you're saying, what you're doing as a company, and why you're doing it. If there's a mismatch, that leads to more questions. Yeah, yeah, that consistency is so important. I'm going to switch topics a bit because uh, yesterday on the show, Dylan and Jason, they talked about uh, the SEC, SEC's approval of spot Bitcoin ETFs. They were waiting sort of to hear the the, the official announcement because it hadn't come out when they did the show. Now we've got Gary Gensler, of course, head of the SEC, and his statement, there was a phrase that stuck with me uh, that the SEC doesn't really approve or endorse Bitcoin. And they said, you know, investors need to remain cautious. So I read that as the SEC kind of, they kind of had to do this. What do you think? What's your take? Once the idea 
uh, for a Bitcoin ETF got started and got support for from the various service provider, providers that were going to you know, make this happen, uh, it was inevitable. The momentum was not going to stop, <laughs> and it was not going to be a, a case where you know, no, we're just not going to do this. And so, what I think the SEC has been trying to do uh, in this quote-unquote negotiation phase before the approval phase is figure out how they can get best organized in order to provide some sort of oversight. Look, the the gravitational pull of Bitcoin is very strong. And the opportunity for service providers to make incremental revenue fee that could actually be really, really big is also strong. So look, it, it was going to happen sooner rather than later. That's, that's always been my, my feeling. Well, now now it's happened. We've got a potential eleven of these coming to market. Uh, so yeah. the, the frenzy the frenzy is on. We've got uh, the Bit, uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and the iShares Bitcoin Trust. Those were first out of the gate. Uh, early trading went way up. We know people. There, there's pent up demand here, right? There's going to be this flurry of excitement. I think about this sort of like, is it more like an like an IPO where I want to watch, uh, maybe wait a year, see how the market, you know, the market, the way the market works on a company, or is it more like, uh, like, like, like a gold ETF or something like that? How do you think about the comparison here? So this is an excellent question and one I had to think uh, quite a bit about, but I think I lean towards the IPO approach that you just mentioned and think it's best to wait and see how lots of things shake out um, and how, especially how the market for Bitcoin actually responds, right? I mean, yeah. the potential for, you know, how is this all going to work? Because if there is all this potential demand you know, that, that wants it, what, you know, what's going to happen to the Bitcoin? Well, I guess it's not a security yet. The Bitcoin uh, <laughs> uh, was uh, asset, <laughs> asset, how it responds. So, um, yeah, what I'm really looking for is to see just how much institutional demand there is for this ETF, because that's who they're targeting. You know, it's difficult for many institutional investors to actually invest in Bitcoin itself. So this provides them a way to do that. So, and to your point, you know, between this one being approved and 11 more <laughs> right behind it, look, we know there's demand. Otherwise, iShares wouldn't have been pursuing this product, right? It just remains to be seen how much there is. So I think the key to making any decision about whether or not you want to buy this ETF um, uh, early on is, you have to be. You have to have some way of handicapping that demand, as well as a way of figuring out what's the potential impact of that demand on the asset itself, Bitcoin. You know, I I thought of it like an IPO, and then I went back to maybe it's more like gold because with with an IPO you have the the revenue potential, you have the story emerging. With Bitcoin, you've got a price. Like there's not there's not there's there's fewer variables there. That, that's an excellent point. The comparison is not perfect, right? Because we don't have uh, um, an asset which is a company, which we have plenty of. Now, if you know, if you go through the IPO process, now we have all of the financial statements, right? We have right. all of yeah. the the information that gives us insight into what this company is going to do and how it's going to do it and how it's going to grow, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. We, we just don't have that with, with, a, with an asset like Bitcoin. But in the other hand, 
it is all about price. I mean, that's really it. <laughs> it's supply yeah. and demand. Supply is for now, right, held constant, and we know demand is there. So, you know, the 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 implication is price go up. <laughs> so, you know, it, it it's it's difficult, but uh, uh, unlike gold, I think this 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 approach is the wait and see approach is better because I think there'll be a lot more volatility in Bitcoin than there likely be with something, a commodity like gold. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. Thanks for breaking this down with me today, David. Thank you, Deidre. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. We talk about a lot of stocks on the show, but it's just a peek at the Motley Fool's investing universe. This year, we're rolling out a new offering. It's called Epic Bundle. The service includes seven stock recommendations every month, model portfolios, and stock rankings, all based on your investor type. We're offering Epic Bundle to Motley Fool Money listeners at a reduced rate as a thanks for listening to the show. So, for more information, head to www.fool.com slash epic198. We'll also include a link in the show notes for you. One of the most powerful questions that investors can ask doesn't involve any math. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Alicia Alfieri for an introduction to the SNAP test and apply it to a few companies. Alicia, I think this is this is a foolish sort of test for a company, but I think it's a powerful question that anyone can and maybe should ask before buying a stock. It's it's called the SNAP test. So to set the table, can you explain what the question is and how it works? Yeah, definitely. So the SNAP test is from David Gardner. And so for fans of the Marvel Universe, it's essentially the Thanos test, which means if you snap your fingers and the company is gone, people be angry? Would they notice? So, it's shorthand for figuring out if a company has an incredible moat or a competitive advantage. Uh, and, and sometimes, again, to help you think structurally about a company. Is there competition? Are there adequate substitutes? Can anything be uh, rebuilt with time and effort? Of course. But would the loss of a thing drive the need uh, to rebuild? But I would also caution you and say that it's just a piece of the puzzle for investing. It's yeah, it's not one question you can ask and then say move on. It's, but it would be easier if it was that way. I think the obvious company to apply it to would be Snapchat, because it's one it's it's one of those things where you can talk about very necessary companies where if they if they shut down things would go very very awry. But also, like with a company like Snapchat, if that was immediately shut down, you would have a lot of upset people who could not communicate with their friends. You would, and perhaps I have a bit of a hot take here because okay. I, I do think so. For those who are unfamiliar, the Snapchat app is an app that allows uh, for visual messaging, and it is wildly popular, right? So, in the third quarter, 406 million global users and over 5 million subscriptions. According to Pew Research Center report, Snapchat was one of the most widely used online platforms for teens. Here's the problem, though. I, I do feel like there are a lot of social media apps and therefore a lot of substitutions. So, if this company were to be snapped away, would its users miss it? 
yes, I think so. But I don't think they would have to really wait long before turning to TikTok, Instagram, maybe even the old school Facebook or WhatsApp. Turning, turning. Yeah, I think they would figure something out. I don't know about Facebook. I think that's one of my favorite takes is I don't use Facebook anymore. I'm just on Instagram. It doesn't really work. I did have, I was working with this, uh, I was talking to a teenager for this volunteer thing, and he told me that he is on Snapchat. Because and he lets everyone see his location and his the reason he does that is because what if you were dying and you needed someone to come save you and so he allows every single person that he's ever met in high school to see his location at all times. Wow. The social dynamics with Snapchat there's a lot of hurt feelings because people can see if their friends are gathering without them. It is terribly unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so maybe not Snapchat, but how about Netflix? That's that's something that people have been snapped, especially over last year when Netflix started cracking down on on password sharing. A lot of people understood, like, oh, I'm I'm a little upset. I'm not getting my Netflix right now. So Netflix is just about everywhere, right? Streaming content in over 190 countries with content in lots of different genres and languages. 247 million paid uh, subscribers at the end of the third quarter. Uh, And it's still the only major pure play streaming content provider, right? It was incredibly disruptive uh, to the old way of watching and distributing content. And it did so well that, as we know, a lot of companies tried to copy the model. It has an incredible amount of content that continues to resonate with its users. Uh, so I was reading about a Nielsen study, uh, and they, they looked at the US watching habits for the first 38 weeks of 2023. And Netflix had the most watched original series for 37 of those weeks, and the most watched movie for 31 of those weeks. So we're talking about something that really resonates with people. Uh, so it was also found that, that it was more than all of the other streaming services and platforms in terms of screen time, except for YouTube. But the snap test. So, several years ago, when it was mostly just Netflix in the space, the company could easily pass over that hurdle for the snap test. It's a little bit more complicated now. There are plenty of substitutes, Disney+, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, Hulu, and others. But we can argue about whether those are actually adequate uh, substitutes for for Netflix, right? Netflix changed the way we consume entertainment, uh, and it's still the largest streaming service out there. So, I think that this one passes the snap test for now, though maybe not in another few years, if if others can catch up. Yeah, when when I think of the snap test, I think snap, Netflix, those are some fun ones, but then there's ones where the world would be seriously damaged if these companies wouldn't exist. And for that, my mind kind of goes to a lot of the semiconductor companies, whether it's a Taiwan Semiconductor, which manufactures the chips, or ASML, which manufactures the machines that make the chips. If either of those companies went away, there would be seri- there would be very serious problems for for the fragile civilization we live in. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct because we're talking about semiconductors are vital to electronics and and to your everyday life, and that's not at all being hyperbolic. It's it's true, um, and we're talking about companies that are important in terms of the supply chain of those electronic goods. So definitely, those would pass uh, the snap test. So. We've associated, and you mentioned this earlier, where you said just because you pass the snap test, it doesn't mean that you know it's it's an attractive stock for for an investor. Let's let's put that to practice then. So, what are some companies that you think maybe pass the snap test? The world would go awry 
it would be very difficult if these companies didn't exist, but you're not you're not running out to buy those stocks. Well, every everything in context, right? It it depends on on individual companies, but I would say that the sector where this would be the case would be the utility company sector, right? So we know if the electrical grid in your area were to disappear, uh, that would be a massive problem. But that doesn't mean you would want to invest in a company. So as with everything, it depends on the individual company and circumstances. But these companies often have a fair amount of debt, so the utility industry is one of the most most leveraged, and that's because it it has this requirement to maintain and build infrastructure. A lot of these companies pay a dividend, um, but if a company is taking on too much debt and burning cash, it can put their ability to pay dividends at risk. And if that's your reason for investing in one to have the dividends, that's you're going to run into some trouble there. And there's, they've also run into some some trouble with the comps now as interest rates rise and a lot of the utility companies were paying a healthy dividend. That becomes a little bit less attractive if you can get a United States literally risk-free investment for for four or five percent. Right, and it and it might sound crazy that that a utility company would suspend or cut their dividend, but it has happened. I. Uh, Last year, a utility company called Algonquin Power and Utilities actually cut their dividend something like 40% to shore up their finances. All right. So, to add even a little bit more, more nuance, maybe there's a company you like that completely fails the SNAP test, but maybe has historically been a good stock. One example I talked about recently with, with Bill Barker on the show was Crocs. I think that's a company that, for the, for the past few years, it's, it's beaten the market. It is if if one did not have Crocs in existence, people could find alternate footwear, clogs, sandals, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. So so for me, it would be Costco. Really? Right? Yeah. So, that would be a very painful loss if I didn't have Costco. It would be. It would be for sure. So we know, you know, they pioneered the membership warehouse club, keeps customers coming back, member retention rate in the 90% range, continues to grow, generate cash. But there is a lot of retail competition, and there are substitutes in the in the space, right? Like like Sam's Club. So if you snapped it away, its members, including me, and I'm guessing you, would would definitely uh, feel the loss and and be sad about the particularly the loss of those bargain hot dogs. Um, but but competitors could come in to, to to fill the gap. If you're if you're a Costco member, you could still get groceries. You could still still get tires somewhere else. It would Absolutely. Just, it would be incredibly annoying, and I wouldn't like it very much. Right. Lucia Ferry, thank you for your time and your insight. Glad to be here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.